When you die, who gets to decide what your story is? Is it you? The words you write down? The history you've created by living it? Does any of it count once you're not around? Are you instead written by the people who love you the most? What about the people who hated you or feared you? Maybe it's a combination of all of the above. In an ideal world, we might be able to trust that the scales will balance, that the truth will rise to the top like cream. But what if it doesn't? What if the hate is ingrained, systemic? What if the fear overpowers everything? What then? If you're lucky, the rumors eventually die out. But if not, well, then you might just spend eternity as a ghost. Welcome to Women Who Haunt Us, presented by Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. Ordinarily on this show, I take you through the life and crimes of some of history's most notorious women. But this being spooky season, we're trying something a little different. This special four-part series is all about women who, rightly or wrongly, scare the bejesus out of people. Were they criminals? Sometimes. Do they live on as ghosts? Debatable. Do they haunt us to this day? Absolutely. Last time we met Eunice Cole, a woman who survived three witchcraft trials in 17th century New Hampshire, only for her enduring legacy to be that of a witch. Today we're getting to know Mary Ellen Pleasant, a woman who was never charged with any crime, but whose spirit supposedly hangs out at a San Francisco park. We'll take a look at the mystique surrounding Mary, the truth behind the rumors, and her lasting legacy as a pioneering black businesswoman and abolitionist. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The city of San Francisco has hundreds of parks. They're lush green slopes, perfect for a picnic in the Cali sun, swimming pools full of excited kids, and community gardens where fresh produce is the star of the show. 
But my personal favorite of all of San Francisco's parks just happens to be its smallest. Mary Ellen Pleasant Memorial Park stands on the corner of Octavia and Bush Streets. And if you don't know it's there, you might walk right past it. There's no grass, no water fountain, no picnic tables. All you get is six towering eucalyptus trees and a plaque set into the sidewalk. According to some, you also get a light haunting. Local legends say that crows announce the presence of the park's namesake, who's been known to throw eucalyptus nuts at passersby. Some people also believe that if you catch Mary in a good mood, she'll grant you a wish. As far as ghostly antics go, Mary's spirit is fairly benign, especially when you consider the kind of press she got when she was alive. San Francisco locals knew her as Mammy Pleasant, a woman with mysterious power over anyone who came into contact with her. She was diabolical, they said, the shrewdest woman in San Francisco. By the end of the 19th century, it seemed like the whole town knew of and feared Mary's voodoo powers. It was said that she once used her black magic to kill a man. Journalists speculated that she bewitched people into giving her their riches. She stole babies, lured women into sex work, and sold love potions. But not everyone was afraid of Mary Ellen Pleasant. To those who really knew her, she was apparently generous and kind, the best kind of friend. Among the city's black community, she was a successful entrepreneur and civil rights activist. She spoke up about racial injustice in the city and wasn't afraid to put her money where her mouth was. But even with all the things people knew about Mary and what they thought they knew about her, she still had plenty of secrets. Case in point, locals knew her mansion as the House of Mysteries, and it was an apt name. To this day, people still speculate about what went on inside the sprawling Victorian home. Who built the house? Why did Mary live there with her business partner's family? How did that partner die? Did Mary have something to do with it? And why was she forced to leave the house by one of her oldest friends? Look, I promise we're gonna address all of those questions in good time, but there are some mysteries that we'll probably never be able to solve when it comes to Mary Ellen Pleasant. And there's one very good reason for that. She didn't want us to. We know that because she wrote three autobiographies in her life and each one contradicts the others. So to this day, you can read many different versions of Mary's early years. Some insist that she was born into slavery, though Mary herself refuted that. And as historian Lynn M. Hudson put it, the truth about her birth is less important than the way Mary wanted to be remembered, which was as a free woman. So that's the version we'll go with. But that's not the only part of her origins that are disputed. She wrote in one biography that she was born in August of 1814, but the truth about her childhood is unclear. Mary reportedly didn't know much about her parents. She said her father was a commercial man who imported silks from India, and she remembered very little about her mother. Now, while we're on the subject of her parentage, I wanna pull over and touch on the color of Mary's skin, because her race plays a big role in her story. See, reports about how dark her skin was differ wildly. Some claim that she was, quote, black as ebony, but others make much of her ability to pass as white in post-abolition America. So again, we can't know what the truth was for sure. 
What is clear is that at a very early age, Mary was sent to live in Nantucket. She lived with a family there and likely worked as an indentured servant. And the importance of this to Mary's story is twofold. First, it showed that she worked hard from as young as six. Second, Nantucket was, at the time, home to a large Quaker population, and Quakers were pro-abolition. The area was also associated with women-run businesses. With their husbands away at sea on whaling trips, the island's women ran the town for much of the time, including the businesses. The main street was affectionately known as Petticoat Row. But though her adoptive home taught her valuable lessons about a woman's ability to run her own business, it also showed her that there was plenty about the world that could be improved. She was denied a formal education, likely because of her race, and although Nantucket locals were largely in favor of abolition, that didn't keep them from segregating their island. New Guinea was an area reserved specifically for black residents. It featured shops, boarding houses, and more. In her book, The Making of Mammy Pleasant, Hudson points out that this space would have served as an early example of successful black entrepreneurship to young Mary. In other words, Mary's childhood taught her how to be independent and self-reliant as a black woman in the 19th century. And as she reached adulthood, she was ready to take those lessons and spin them into gold. She just had no idea that her ambition would make her into a voodoo queen. Up next, Mary heads west to stake her claim. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Exactly when Mary Ellen Pleasant left Nantucket, I couldn't say. But after making the 30-mile journey to the mainland, it seemed that she settled in Boston for a spell. If you asked me to make an educated guess, I'd say that she likely picked up work in the growing town's millinery and dressmaking industry. It's also likely the place where she picked up her first husband, who she married in the late 1830s or early 40s. But like Mary's origins, we don't know a lot about this guy either. The one thing that most seem to agree on is that he was a committed abolitionist, and that when he died, he left his wealth to his Mary so that she could continue the work. Again, just how much money he left her isn't clear, but guesses typically range between thirty dollars and $50,000, which was many hundreds times a decent working-class salary at the time. Even if it's at the lower end of that scale, her husband had made Mary a very wealthy woman. And to borrow a phrase, as a single woman in possession of a good fortune, she must have been in want of a husband because she married again in 1847. John James Pleasant was the guy's name, and that's about all I can tell you with any degree of certainty, but it's honestly all you need to know about him. Not long after they married, Mary and John set sail for California. The gold rush had seen a booming economy spring up in the state almost overnight. And although Mary, who was around 35, wasn't a miner herself, she definitely knew how to seize a business opportunity. 
with tens of thousands rushing to places like San Francisco, there was a high demand for all manner of workers, especially domestic servants. That said, gold wasn't the only draw the West held for Mary. See, as word of plentiful riches in California spread around the world, the racial makeup of the state shifted. People headed there from around the U.S. and across the sea, creating a, quote, multi-ethnic, multi-racial West. This might have made it feel safer for a black woman like Mary, who was an active and ardent abolitionist. She was also apparently a fantastic cook. One story goes that her reputation was such that when her ship docked in San Francisco, wealthy merchants and miners rushed to meet it and compete for her services. There were so few cooks in the city that the men started a bidding war for her. The offers topped out at $500 a month and included only cooking. Mary insisted that she wouldn't do any kind of cleaning, not even dishes. However, it's possible that this story is just a part of the legend built up around Mary. But historian Lynn Hudson asserts that when she first arrived, Mary certainly made a good deal of money working as a housekeeper and cook for a house of merchants. And even if she wasn't getting $500 a month, she still would have been doing all right for herself. Female domestic servants earned the best wages in the state at the time, around $13 a week. But wait, why was Mary working when she had tens of thousands to her name? An excellent question. Remember when I said she was good at recognizing a business opportunity when she saw one? Well, life was one big business opportunity to Mary Ellen Pleasant. While she was working hard for her weekly paycheck, she also made shrewd money moves at the same time. She'd started investing her money as soon as she arrived in San Francisco. She backed Wells Fargo and Bank of California and directed more of her considerable wealth into precious metals, businesses, and real estate. Having spent much of her adolescence watching the women of Nantucket run Petticoat Row, she'd probably learned how to manage money, how to succeed in business without even being a man. Of course, she was still eager to learn everything she could, which is where her job came in. By the end of the 1850s, she'd established herself as, quote, a cook for some of the most elite families and bachelors in San Francisco. This put her in a unique, valuable position to receive stock tips and buy into real estate deals. Though whether she actively asked for advice or simply listened in to her employers whenever she could isn't totally clear. Either way, it proved that Mary had at least one thing in spades. Hustle. If you need more proof of her determination, there's plenty. With all the money she was earning, Mary opened up her own laundries around the city. Oh, and while she was doing all of that, she was also actively working as an abolitionist. She spearheaded a campaign to ensure black Americans were allowed to testify in court, something that was illegal until 1863. She worked to rescue enslaved people from white slaveholders, and in one of her bolder moves, provided John Brown with most of the money to launch his attack at Harper's Ferry. If you're not familiar with the story, the long and short of it is that Brown staged a raid in an effort to free enslaved people. The uprising failed, though, and Brown was hanged. For years, people wondered who signed a note he had on him when he was arrested. The initials at the bottom appeared to read W.E.P. When she heard that people were looking for someone with a name to match, Mary apparently laughed. 
amused that her poor penmanship had sent Southern authorities on a wild goose chase. And between you and me, even if they had the right initials, I don't think anyone would have ever suspected Mary was the one they were looking for, because by this stage of her life, it seems she was taking advantage of her role as a mammy. Now, this is a really central part of Mary's story. By the end of her life, she was inseparable from the idea of a mammy, and I'd argue that that's part of the reason people decided she was haunting her park in San Francisco. So, what is a mammy? Well, there's a long racist history behind the idea, but basically it's a caricature of older African-American women as benign, cheerful domestics. Mammy was faithful to the white family who enslaved her, often resented any children of her own, and was always obese. She underlined the argument that slavery wasn't a barbaric practice, it was wholesome. If it weren't, Mammies wouldn't be so cheerful or so fiercely protective of their white families. Mammy was also completely desexualized. She posed no threat to the marriage of any white couple, which made her safe to have in the home. She'd look after her charges, dote on them, cook hearty meals. So as she worked in domestic roles, Mary might have adopted a version of this persona to put her white employers at ease and otherwise move through the world without attracting too much attention. Oh, don't worry about her, that's just Mammy Pleasant. Put another way, it was a kind of disguise for Mary, one that allowed her to exist in spaces with the wealthy and powerful of San Francisco, unnoticed and unbothered. It wasn't her only disguise, though, because Mary apparently passed as white for much of her life. 1865 was the first year she identified herself as black on the census. Before she declared that she was black, she flew under the radar a lot more easily, which may have contributed to her early success in San Francisco. After, however, things got more complicated. But to be fair, it seems like Mary might have sought out some of the attention she attracted. It all started with a lawsuit Mary brought in late 1867 or early 68, when she would have been in her mid-50s. Sometime that year, a streetcar driver refused to stop and pick Mary up, despite there being room for passengers and the fact that she had a ticket. It was entirely because she was black. The tram's conductor said so to her face as they drove past. And so, Mary sued. She enlisted the services of a renowned attorney and made a very calculated decision when it came time to create her witness list. Lizette Woodworth had been waiting to meet Mary on the streetcar that day, and she backed up Mary's claim. And remember when I said Mary only worked for the most elite families in the city? Lizette was one of those elite. Even more importantly, she was white. That meant her word mattered in court as opposed to Mary's. Black people could testify, but that didn't mean anyone had to believe them. Mary knew that. Lisette Woodworth was her ace. She won the case and was awarded $500 in punitive damages. But the railroad company appealed the verdict, and in a twist that would seem ironic if it weren't just incredibly racist, they called the damages excessive and prejudiced. In the end, California's Supreme Court overturned the decision, so Mary never got her money. Not that she'd ever needed it, the fight had always been about drawing attention to discrimination against people of color. And like I mentioned, the court case certainly drew plenty of attention, specifically to Mary herself. The legal drama was covered extensively in the papers, and she became a very public mammy figure. 
On the stand, Lizette Woodworth told the court that she called Mary Mama, which was an easy shorthand for their relationship. They were maid and employer. As Lynn Hudson argues, this was a crucial part of Mary's reputation. In the public eye, she wasn't a revolutionary or an entrepreneur, though she was both. To San Francisco, she was just Mammy Pleasant. The image was non-threatening, nostalgic, patronizing. But just then, Mary probably didn't care about being patronized. She was doing just fine for herself, thank you very much. America was on the verge of its Gilded Age, and she was about to enter a Gilded Age all her own. She just didn't realize how messy her life was about to get. Coming up, voodoo, baby stealing, and a puzzling death at the House of Mystery. Now back to the story. By 1868, Mary Ellen Pleasant was done playing the role of domestic servant. That's the year she listed herself as a boarding house owner in the San Francisco City Directory. And she didn't own low-rent boarding houses. She opened high-end establishments akin to luxury hotels. Staying at one of Mary's houses was expensive and put you on an exclusive list. In 1869, she opened her most elaborate one yet on Washington Street, a location that attracted the city's political and financial elite. Some of the state's leading politicians called the boarding house home, including California's eventual governor. And why wouldn't they? The rooms were lavishly furnished, the food was sumptuous, and the wine list expertly curated. It was all so tasteful and elegant, and things were going so well that you just know people had to start gossiping. Remember, Mary's high-profile court case had catapulted her into the spotlight, so it's not that surprising that people whispered about what was going on behind the doors of her establishments. Some people said that the boarding houses were actually bordellos in disguise, and that Mary was a madam. And while there's no evidence to prove that claim, there's nothing that disproves it either. So it's entirely possible that Mary did stick her toe into the sex industry. But if she did, then she was very, very good at it. Whether everyone believed the rumors or not, just the idea would have sullied Mary's reputation and the rarefied circles in which she'd once mixed. But by this stage of her life, she probably wasn't all that concerned with what people thought of her. She was richer than just about anyone could want to be, having grown her fortune from mining booms, real estate, and savvy business moves. Her wealth, however, was somehow linked to that of her financial partner. Thomas Bell was vice president of the Bank of California, the leading financial institution in the West. It's really unclear when or how the pair met. Some have guessed that it was on the journey to San Francisco from the East Coast, but knowing for sure is impossible. Likewise, the precise nature of Bell's relationship with Mary is murky, but it seems their fortunes were tied up together, which is where a lot of the enduring mystique about Mary begins. Or rather, it begins with the house of mystery. Because however Mary became entangled with her partner, she was no longer concerned with hiding her wealth. That much became clear in 1877, when she had a massive Victorian house built on a hill near San Francisco's business district. It was reportedly worth $100,000, which would be millions today. The property was huge. It took up two city blocks. 
and Mary filled its 30 rooms with lavish furnishings like inlaid bookcases, fine rugs, and marble floors. But she didn't live in the house alone, because for some reason, and feel free to speculate on your own here, she invited Thomas Bell and his family to live with her. And before we go any further, I want to underline just how much people seem to talk about Mary's home. Charles Doby was an author and historian, and in 1933, he wrote this about the House of Mystery. Just to pass this house inspired me with an exquisite terror. Its mystery was not the mystery of ghosts, but the mystery of flesh and blood enchantment. People were reputed to live beneath its frowning mansard roof, but the only person I ever saw emerge was the black witch who held them all enthralled. So this is where we can see the shifting narrative around Mary Ellen Pleasant. For years, she'd played the role of the harmless Mammy, but once she stepped outside the confines of that racially charged stereotype, people reacted strongly. Now, locals didn't know what to do with the idea of a wealthy black woman. We'll talk more about that later. But for the time being, it seems people fell back on what they knew. When Thomas Bell and his wife moved into Mary's house, a lot of people assumed that the home belonged to them. The white couple, they decided, must be master and mistress of the house, and the older black woman must be the servant. They whispered this in spite of the fact that Mary had her own liveried coach with footmen. It was a regular sight around the city, so it's not like people couldn't see clear evidence that she was wealthy. It seems more like they just refused to believe it. Alternatively, they feared Mary. Looking at what Charles Doby wrote, it seems like there was a prevailing consensus that she was a witch of some kind. In a lot of the writings about Mary, there are references to her powers as a voodoo queen. And because these likely explain how she became a ghost story, I want to tell you about how these rumors started. It was a pair of highly publicized trials that did it. In 1884 and 85, Mary was wrapped up in the life of one Sarah Hill. She apparently confided in Mary that Senator William Sharon had married her in secret, then cheated on and abandoned her. Always ready for a fight, Mary encouraged Sarah to sue Sharon for divorce and ask for alimony. Mary graciously footed the legal bill, and at least at first, her role in the story was largely backstage. However, in court, Senator Sharon, who was worth between $25 and $30 million, claimed that he'd paid Sarah $500 a month for sex, but had never married her. That meant Mary had to step up as a witness to testify that she'd seen the pair's marriage contract. There's a lot to unpack from the two trials, but the part of the story that seemed to really stick around were the accusations that Mary was Sarah's madam and that she had used voodoo magic to bewitch Senator Sharon. As far as we can tell, there's no evidence that Mary ever practiced any kind of witchcraft, though some historians argue that she followed voodoo, a Haitian religion passed down through her family. Whatever the truth of the matter, the result was the same. Voodoo became an almost defining pillar of Mary's narrative after that. And the idea seemed to resurface whenever she returned to the spotlight over the years. Crucially, as Lynn Hudson points out, voodoo signaled knowledge and secrets, emphasized African roots, and strengthened connections to a slave past. 
In other words, Mary's story was twisted by people who didn't know her, didn't understand how a black woman could possibly be wealthy, and were probably fairly racist. Of course, once voodoo entered the picture, the illusion of the dutiful Mammy was all but shattered. But as Mary was in her 70s by this stage, it should hardly have mattered what anyone thought about her wealth, right? If only that were true. See, in October of 1892, Thomas Bell died. He fell from a balcony in the House of Mystery. His wife wasn't home at the time, but Mary was. Days later, a coroner confirmed that the death was a tragic accident, nothing more. However, if you search for information about the incident now, you'll find wild accounts of murder, of Mary pouring over the shattered remains of her business partner's skull. But if we've learned anything by now, it's that the more out there claims about Mary should be taken with a grain of salt, or sometimes like in this particular case, disregarded altogether. But despite the fact that she'd done nothing wrong, Mary's story took a turn after that. She and Belle's widow, Teresa, got along well for the most part, and the family stayed living at the House of Mystery on Octavia Street. But a judge decided that the house belonged to the Bells, eliminating any claim Mary had over the property she almost surely built by herself. Then things got really messy when Belle's eldest son, Fred, accused Mary of having murdered his father. He also said that she had too much influence over his mother and asked the courts to remove Teresa as head of the household. Mary Ellen Pleasant controlled Teresa's every move, Fred's lawyers argued, taking every opportunity to point out how much power she wielded in the House of Mystery. To be fair, though, Mary built the house on Octavia Street and had invited the Bell family to live with her. So it was perfectly natural for her to have control over it. But 17-year-old Fred didn't see it that way. He thought Mary and his mother were squandering his father's fortune, his inheritance, and that wouldn't stand. At first, the case seemed to pit Mary and Teresa against Fred, but eventually Teresa turned on her old friend. In April of 1899, she forced Mary to move out of the home they'd shared for years. By that stage, though, that wasn't Mary's only problem. Creditors were knocking at her door. Fred Bell even insisted that Mary had orchestrated her own eviction as a way of fooling the people hounding her for money. Indeed, her fortune was still so tangled up with the Bell's money that working it all out proved next to impossible. And so, as she entered her 90s, Mary's vast resources were steadily depleted. She'd once been the richest black woman in California, but as creditors came after her and Teresa Bell fought her for property deeds, that wasn't true anymore. At the same time as she lost control of her finances, Mary also lost control of her image. In 1899, a former employee wrote a piece for the Sunday Chronicle called Queen of the Voodoos. It was more of the stuff that had come up in the trial against Senator Sharon years earlier, just in more salacious detail. And as more people realized just how wealthy Mary had been, the article suggested that dark magic was behind her success, not a sharp mind and business cunning. It probably didn't help that after she was quote-unquote exposed as a controlling schemer with designs on a white man's money, Mary seemed to fall into relative poverty. 
Though she still owned several properties, it was far from the vast wealth she once controlled. Perhaps people thought her spell had finally been broken. In the end, that's how Mary Ellen Pleasant died, far poorer than she once was, but still much wealthier than most other black women of the day. Of course, when they announced her death in January of 1904, newspapers opted to focus on the juicier parts of Mary's story. The San Francisco Examiner doubled down on the voodoo angle with their article titled, Mammy Pleasant Will Work Weird Spells No More. But though the headlines were splashy and exaggerated, the journalists couldn't totally ignore Mary's importance in the city's elite circles. She was a friend of those in high esteem, they wrote, a schemer, a spellcaster, and she died of a broken heart. The supposed cause of that broken heart, the Bell family, soon emerged from the woodwork to squabble over what was left of Mary's fortune and further shred her reputation. In the years following her death, the truth about Mary Ellen Pleasant blurred around the already frayed edges. Back then, journalism standards weren't as robust as we hope they are today, so rumors and lies became accepted truth. Exaggeration gave way to urban legend, and what should have been a towering legacy was reduced to a mysterious story about San Francisco's voodoo queen. Throughout the 20th century, various books and plays centering on Mary kept her story alive, though these were problematic at best and racist at worst. Unfortunately, they perpetuated the stereotypes and outright lies that dominated the last few years of Mary's life. She was portrayed as a duplicitous, wicked former slave who'd hoodwinked and bewitched her way to success. But recently, a more nuanced truth has emerged. Thanks to the work of historians like Lynn Hudson, Mary's been given her due as a pioneering, successful woman brought down by greed, though not her own. That redemption is slow, though, and because of her reputation during her lifetime, Mary's relatively unknown amongst history's civil rights activists, so there's no great push to restore her good name. In the absence of that effort, this is what we can offer Mary. She deserves better. She deserved better than the treatment she got at the end of her life. She deserved better than the treatment she got in death. She deserves better than a weak ghost story, to spend eternity as a disgruntled witch haunting a copse of eucalyptus on a San Francisco street corner. That street corner is the site of the mansion Mary once built for herself. The home is long gone, but the trees she planted remain one of the only signs that she was ever here. Except, thanks to ghost tours, blogs, and urban legends, even that is tainted by stories of her vengeful nature. The trees are cursed by the voodoo queen, the wicked old mammy who schemed her way to the top. I'm willing to bet that she didn't want that to be her legacy. Not the voodoo, not the bells, and certainly not the name Mammy Pleasant. Mary hated being called that. As for what she wanted people to remember her for, her request was simple. Her tombstone reads, she was a friend of John Brown. Brown, you'll remember, failed. He was hanged. But Mary went to her grave proudest of her support for the cause. She stood up for what was right, fought for what she believed in, and that's how I'll remember her. 
Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. Join me next time for the third episode of our special Halloween series. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Motion. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Joel Callen, edited by Kate Gallagher, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood, and produced by Bruce Kitovich. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 